What's up, everybody? How's everybody doing? All right. Thank you for not following Mike's encouragement. Mike, I see you. Uh, awesome. Well, hey, good morning. I, uh, I'm just grateful to be here with y'all. I really, if I'm being honest, I really love this time of year. Uh, not just the holidays, but I also like what it does to, like, church, if I'm being honest. Like, everything, you know, uh, church kind of experiences the same thing that everyone experiences, where, like, you're kind of experiencing that now, where everything is starting to slow down. Like, at work, it's probably slowing down a little bit, right? Family is kind of starting to come together and be like, hey, we got to make plans, you know, like, we got to think about what we're going to do. Uh, family can look like your blood family. can also look like your, your, your friends and people that you care about here locally. Uh, and everybody kind of starts getting that feeling of, like, all right, what's... What's coming up next? Let's get through the holidays and let's start the new year. You, like me, are already thinking about the new year. And I like that. If I'm being honest, I enjoy that sense of slowing down and getting ready and preparing type of deal. We start thinking about what it looks like to spend time together. You start making plans with each other. And I just enjoy that because I enjoy y'all. And so uh, I'm just grateful for today. And uh, you can hear the kiddos. We didn't have kids' church today, so you can hear them today. Uh, Recognize that they're not in here most of the time. And so even now, even though there's like this little, like, I can hear my son frequently just be like, uh, uh, you know, like between some odd words, like be grateful for them today. Uh, they're going to be in here with us for the next little bit. But um, I don't know why I want to go on a little diatribe. I just like it. I just like this season so much. I like that we're in here hanging out and I love y'all. So, all right, rant done. So. Uh, my name is Josh. All you know me if you're going to watch online later, and I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go into a uh, time of worship through getting into the Word. And so what that means, we're going to open the Bible. We're going to explore it. Last week, we finished up uh, a sermon series entitled Ezra out of exile where we just thought about uh, the book of Ezra. Now, today, for those of you that don't know exactly, uh, today is the first day of not this sermon series, but Advent. Oh, snap. You people know about church. All right, so uh, today's the first day of Advent where we're focusing on really the Christmas season and what it means to kind of kind of focus on, on what that, that coming of Christ means and, and what it means that we, for us to anticipate him and, and to really rejoice at his arrival. And along coinciding with that time of Advent, we're starting a new sermon series entitled A, a Weary World Rejoices. I was told the other day that every once in a while I say weary instead of weary. Uh, and so I don't want you to read a concerned and suspicious world rejoices. I want you to read a tired and, and, and kind of needy world rejoices. And so a weary, weary world rejoices is the title of our uh, new service we're starting today. We're, we're going to focus on a couple of things. And, and really the big deal is what, what I want you to grasp today is that we're going to start uh, focusing on what's called the meta-narrative of Scripture concerning someone called the Messiah. Everyone say meta-narrative. Now, what that is, I don't have one of those little definitions up here for you today, but what that is is trying to think about the story that's above all the little stories in the Bible, right? All the little stories in the Bible, and that can be as small as a book or as small as an instance, but the thing is in the Bible, we believe at this church, right, that the Bible comes together to put together an entire story that focuses on one person. That person is Jesus, 
And so every little bit that we read and progress through the Bible is adding into a bigger story that's telling us about what Jesus is going to do for his creation. And really the story of the Bible is a story that, that really kind of is alongside the story of this Messiah, this, this one who's going to come and make things right. And that's, that's a big part of the, not big part, that's, that's the only reason we celebrate Christmas. The idea that in the midst of a, of a hurting and broken world, a, a where, weary, weary world, right, that there is this Messiah that comes to say, I'm going to make things right. And we want to explore that specific story today. We want to explore that specific story over the course of the next four weeks. Why? Because it's a story that ties us together. It's a story that dry, ties us to God. It's the story that brings us life. It's the story that when we plug into, makes sense of all the other stories that we're going through. Not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and, and Samuel, and Jeremiah, and Matthew, but, but the instances of our lives, right? The moments of pain, the moments of struggle, the moments of triumph. When we begin to understand this story of the Messiah that has come in order to bring life and renewal and redemption, it begins to make sense of all the other stories that are going on in our lives once we understand this story of God redeeming and rescuing his people. And what's fun is that we can actually pick this up and understand the context for this a little bit by picking up where we left off in Ezra. Y'all remember the last two chapters of Ezra? What are they? Well, y'all weren't listening. All right. So the last two chapters of Ezra are Ezra 9 and 10. We covered them last week. And in Ezra 9, last week, we talked about the fact that there was this pattern of uh, repentance that was in Ezra. And so first there was a, a self-examination uh, when, when in 9-1, someone came and said, Ayo, Ezra, like, there's intermarriage, and this is bringing some trouble to our, our religious practices and the way we worship. And then from there, we took a look at how Ezra confessed and, and how he understood the weight of, of sin. And during that confession, there's actually a really important line, and I didn't mention it last week, but I did allude to the fact that we were going to pick it up this week. Uh, and it's a, it's a line that brings a lot of clarity to what we're going to talk about now. It's in Ezra 9. I'm going to read it from up there, actually, because... Um, in Ezra 9, I think it's verse 8, uh, Ezra says, But now, for a brief moment, graces come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place, even in our slavery. God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended his grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can re rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and, a, uh, and Jerusalem. And so from there, what we're, what we're looking at is, is even at the end of Ezra, where we have seen God redeem and kind of bring people out of the Persian kingdom, there's actually still this narrative. There's still this bit going on where Ezra says, man, we're still slaves. We're still slaves. You see, we, we've come out from Persia, and we no longer have this hand of oppression over us, but we're still slaves. We're still not an autonomous people, to be fair. We don't have our own kingdom and our own government. And, and the thing is, is that this is really a theme that is deeply tied to the entirety of the Bible. This idea that despite the fact that people can have freedom, they can still somehow be slaves. 
that despite the fact that people can feel free, they can feel like they've been brought out, they can still be slaves. This idea actually keeps running through the rest of the Old Testament, runs through the beginning of the New Testament, and even though the, the Israelites experience senses of freedom in one way or the other, the intertestimonial period, uh, if you want to read some, some things that aren't in the Bible but are Bible adjacent, and you want to read First and Second Maccabees, that's in something called the Apocrypha. For those of us that uh, have any experience with Catholicism, you know exactly what the Apocrypha is. Uh, if you don't, they're not evil writings or anything. They're actually just books that the Protestant church doesn't believe are inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit, yet they're really helpful because First and Second Maccabees tells the story of even in the middle between the Persian captivity and the upcoming Roman uh, uh, conquest, there's this time where the Israelites do feel free and they feel like they have this space to be who they are. Yet there is still this narrative running through that there's some form of oppression. There's some form of need for something more. There's a, a freedom that's lacking, a, a joy that's lacking, a purpose that's lacking. And the thing is, friends, this doesn't actually start in the exile. This starts somewhere far before the exile at the very beginning of the story. Because it doesn't start in the exile when they start talking about the Messiah. This idea of someone who's going to come and provide rescue and provide redemption starts the very beginning of the book. When we think about where the Messiah comes in and, and, and how the scriptures are, are building out this story, the first thing we think about is the fact that there is a promise of a Messiah even at the beginning of the book. The beginning of the story already creates this promise of the Messiah. And that's what we're going to start with today, right? That before there's, there's really any of these moments of exile, any of these moments of quote-unquote slavery, any of these moments where things are starting to fall apart, there is at the very beginning of the story, beginning of this meta-narrative, beginning of the story that will make sense of all the little stories, there is a promise of a Messiah that's going to come and bring renewal and bring redemption and make sense of everything. Okay, we start actually... Uh, in Genesis, right? In Genesis, where, uh, as we just read, there is a, a curse after a lot of beautiful things have happened. Now, those of you that are in church, you know this story. I'm not going to rehatch the whole story, but I am going to try to summarize it, right? There is a moment in the beginning where, where Adam and Eve are created. Everything is beautiful. Everything's perfect, right? And then from there, a serpent comes in. The serpent is tempting. The serpent tempts Eve to eat fruit that God had said, hey, this is the one fruit in this garden that you can't have. Right? This is the one fruit. Everything else in this whole garden you can have, but, but the tree, the, the fruit from this one tree, I don't want you to have that. Now, here's the thing. Some of us are thinking, like, this is crazy, right? However, I want you to keep in mind that some of these stories in the Bible, they, they can be taken literally, and they don't have to be taken literally. They, they speak on poetic levels regardless if you read them literally or if you don't. And in this instance, the, the idea of this tree represents a specific thing. Whether it's a literal tree or not is not the point of Genesis. The idea that this will be a means by which people learn what good and evil is, is the point. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, I should have actually brought up the, the quote, but I always can't. I can never find the book. It's lost in my sea of books somewhere at my house. But a man named Graham Goldsworthy, who is an incredible theologian, describes the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a means by which the people are going to learn good and evil one way or the other. They're either going to submit to good and learn to resist evil, or they're going to submit to evil and learn what it means to oppose good. One of the two is going to happen as they approach this tree. But that's the idea that, that Genesis is getting at, that there's this tree, and by, by this tree, there's going to be a lesson learned about what evil is and what good is. And unfortunately, if you know the story of Genesis, you know that they choose the latter. They choose to submit to evil and then, therefore, to oppose good. 
And from there, there's this moment where uh, God in the garden says, where's Adam? And Adam's like, hey, what's up? And then God's like, why'd you hide and why couldn't I find you? And he's like, well, I was a little concerned because I'm naked. And then God was like, who told you you were naked? Right? This whole, this whole weird interaction has a lot, has a lot in it that we're not going to get to cover. But, but I want you to, to track with me for just a moment here. All this leads to, to a response from God, right, that, that is fitting to the sinful actions of the people uh, that, that really disrupts the beautiful design that God had, had placed into the world from the beginning. And so God creates this world, and, and each day he says, this is good. This is perfect. This is beautiful. Each day he designs every element and saying, man, this is, this is going to be incredible. And then he creates humanity, and he's like, man, Go and take dominion of the world. You're made in my image. Go and, go and express how good I am by governing and ruling the world in a like way, in the way I would, and spread who I am through the world. And it creates this beautiful scene that when we go into Genesis 3, the story seems incredible. And when this fall takes place, what ends up happening after that, something called right, the curses of the fall, right, it starts to create a world that I think you and I should be more familiar with. So when God finally comes to this moment and, and there's like, oh, we messed up, there are these curses that take place. And this is where we had our reading today. And, and these curses, I try to summarize them here for you, but, but the three characters involved are Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And then from there, there's these curses that are handed to each one of them. For Adam, there's that, this reality that the ground is cursed because of him. And it leads to a burdensome labor to provide for himself or his family, as opposed to before, there was this joyful work, right, in Genesis 2, 4 through 5. Before all this fall stuff happens, there is this, this, this moment where the author of Genesis says, there weren't any fruit-bearing trees because there wasn't anybody to work the trees. Because before all the fall stuff takes place, there's still this expectation that a part of humanity's function is to work, is to cultivate and build the world around it. And so there, rather than this beautiful idea of, of working and, and cultivating, now there's this labor to provide. Right? There's this, this burden. Uh, and, and really that purpose to cultivate is now replaced with a painful sense of provision. This idea that, man, it's going to hurt. The, the, the ground, it literally says in Genesis 3, is going to respond to your labor by producing thicket and thorns. And when you eat bread, it will be by the sweat of your brow now, not by anything else. Right? So there's already this curse taking place where the purpose that God had given to humanity in building up the world and taking dominion over it, in cultivating it, in seeing it built up around them in this curse now is starting to deteriorate. It's starting to reverse in some way. And then all of a sudden we get to Eve now. And, and the curse that comes down on Eve as a result is that childbirth pain will be increased, but so will longing for the husband. And so these two kind of like parallel ideas of a longing for the husband that leads to childbirth, they're now both increased. And, and, and this husband will assume more leadership in the absence of God's unique presence in the world. And so uh, I, I one time had a seminary professor uh, in this really great way talking about the idea of hierarchy in the Bible, uh, meaning like within relationships, within the idea of the Trinity, that's kind of nerdy. But um, he, he gave this great, this, great, this great observation here where he says hierarchy was never an, an intention, it was a result. Hierarchy was never an intention, it was a result. There's no idea, there's no, there's no clues in the first two chapters of the Bible about how God made one to be more or one to lead and one to follow or, or one to serve and one to, to no, none of that's present in the first two chapters. 
but the result of the removal of God's unique presence in the garden from the lives of his creations leads to this idea of saying, hey, outside of my unique presence, someone will need to serve, someone will need to sacrifice, someone will need to lay down their lives. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite the husband into that type of work. And so that's, that's really what that idea is looking toward. It's not saying that, I, I don't believe I should say, that it's saying, hey, there is an idea where, where all women shall be enslaved and be ruled over by their husbands, but rather in the absence of God's unique providing character in the Bible, now the, the husband will need to assume that role because of the absence of God's unique character and unique uh, presence in the garden. And so that's the, the second curse. But then from there, he goes to the serpent, and he says he is banned uh, by being placed on his belly as he tempted those from the dust. He will now eat the dust. And if you look at that curse at the end, it's saying, hey, you're going to be on your stomach, and you're going to eat dust. And it's because he actually tempted and tried to destroy those who came from dust. And as a result, now he will eat dust. Uh, again, poetic language. You and I both know or should know that snakes don't eat dust, but hey, right? Using some poetry here to, to kind of create some imagery in your mind, all right? Um, there is enmity, enmity uh, between his offspring and Eve's offspring. That's the final part of this. So all this happens as a result of, of this fall, right? There are these curses that are, that are laid down. And here's the thing. This is what it builds out. It builds out these realities that, that there is now a disconnection in the world as a result of these actions. That there's now a disconnection in the world as a result of these actions. Right, when you think about these disconnections, we're going to call them disconnections from the fall, right? From, from the beginning in 3, 10 through 12, you can see that there's a disconnect from God. There's a disconnect from his full presence, his heart, uh, and his ways because of sin, right? God says, hey, I want to invite you into what it means to follow me, to know me, uh, and to spread my ways through the world through following what I say and what I do and who I am. And all of a sudden, there's a disconnection there because of sin that results in more sin. Right, so right off the bat from the fall, there's a disconnect from God. There, there's no longer this unique spiritual presence with uh, people that, that is characterized in the first two chapters of Genesis. Now, I want to clarify something because I've actually heard questions about this. Uh, people in your life have undoubtedly told you that we are separated from God because of sin. I think that's an okay way of saying that. I also think it leaves a little bit to be desired. Because sinful people are interacted uh, with by God for the rest of the Bible. Uh, like in the very next chapters, there's like, hey, here's uh, Eve's children. And sure enough, God's interacting with them. And so if we're separated from God because of sin, uh, man, it seems like there's a lot of instances where God interacts with people right after that. Uh, and it seems to be a character where it's more like God is just coming in and interacting with sinful people, even though he's supposed to be separated from them. And so I don't think that there is necessarily this literal separation uh, where God was like some figure like me and he was walking around with Adam and Eve. Uh, the Bible says God is spirit. And as a result, the presence of God in Genesis 1 and 2 was likewise spiritual. And so when we think about a spiritual presence of God, there is a unique connection with God uh, to be reconciled with God that's present in Genesis 1 and 2 that as a result of the fall is no longer the case. It's no longer the case. There's a disconnect from his heart. There's a disconnect from his presence. There's a disconnect from his ways. This is evident in the very moment when Adam, naked, comes to God and says, I was embarrassed because I thought you would judge me and I thought you would come down hard on me because I'm naked. Right? Just in that moment, you see that there's a disconnect from the heart of God on Adam's part. Just in the sheer moment that he says, I want to hide from him. 
right? So we're, we're disconnected from God in, in this unique, spiritual, but powerful way that seems to make us forget who he is, forget his character, forget how much he loves us, forget how much he cares, forget what he's willing to do in order to restore us, and then we, son, we suddenly run and hide from him. And this hiding, this running from him, is the base by which now the rest of the sinful result comes. Because from being disconnected from God, we now realize that we're disconnected from others. You see that in Genesis 3, 12, 15, and 16, when God says, hey, where are you at, Adam? Adam's like, I was kind of hiding from you, my bad. And then he was like, who told you you were naked? And he's like, you see, what happened was the woman that you gave me, right, that woman, that woman's the one that gave me the fruit. And so automatically Adam starts to turn the, the responsibility not on himself, but onto God and onto Eve and saying, you made her and you gave her to me. So now that means it's your bad that she tempted me. And then he moves on to Eve and says, hey, who told you to eat the fruit? And she's like, man, the snake that you made, again, I ain't going to say that it was me or the snake, but I think, you know, in so facto, you made all of us. So, I mean, it must be your bad. So she's looking at God, right? He's looking at God. They're looking at each other and saying, I don't feel comfortable around you anymore. I'm going to hide from you. You're going to hide from me because we think that we're naked and that brings shame. And all of a sudden, right, there is this, this disconnect relationally. We have a disconnect with others. And friends, you've seen this. The reality of sin is so pervasive in the area of relationships. And it should be one of the ones that is most vivid because it's one of the areas that sin comes in and does the most destruction when we're actually looking at what sin does in relationships, we start to realize that our sinful experiences, right, begin to birth out real, real realities of how we disconnect from others. A lot of y'all have heard me use the story that I come from a very critical home. I come from a critical home where, where love was expressed oftentimes in trying to shape you to be better. That's the way a lot of my family was, right? Um, and as a result, now when I hear people's criticisms, like sometimes it's a positive from that is that I don't take criticism that hard to be honest. Like you guys can look at me and be like, that sermon's, (laughs) there's children present. That sermon was trash. And I'll be like, oh man, I'll get them next time. Like, you know, like it's just, I'll be like, okay, that's what happens. But at the same time, what ends up happening is that there's also very subtle things that happen that tend to influence me. As an example that I always use in our small group, my wife, uh, none of us like doing dishes. If you like doing dishes, God bless you. Not me and mine, I'll say that much. And so we got dishes mounted up in the sink, and my wife comes over, looks at said dishes, and just says, <sighs> most of us in any normal context here, a disappointed, pregnant, tired woman looking at dishes and going, <sighs> not me. Not me, because of all my sinful experiences, I hear, Josh isn't good enough. Josh doesn't do enough. Josh needs to do more. Josh isn't man enough. If Josh took care of this, I would never have to do it. Nothing she's thinking, nothing she's saying. But yet because of the, the sinful experiences I've had in my interactions with other people, right, I have a world of context that's coming and influencing me with my wife. Right? When we disconnect from others, it's not that we don't have relationships with them. It's that sin enters into the world of our relationships, and it starts to leave marks on you no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, and no matter what relationships you have. It starts to leave marks on you that begin to affect the rest of your life for the rest of your life. That's what being disconnected from others through sin looks like. And so there's disconnection from God, but that leads to a disconnection from others because of how sin begins to seep in and impact our lives with those around us. But then there's also disconnect from ourselves. 
right? We're disconnected from ourselves, from our purpose and our identity, and we start to seek those things outside of God due to disconnecting from God. And so because we no longer have an identity of what it means to be loved by God, what it means to be cared for by God, what it means to be affirmed by God, to know that I can walk around and be like, yo, I'm good because I'm walking out of, I'm walking from grace, not toward grace, right? That we talked about this last week. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, um, right? It, because we're not, we're not equipped with this idea, we start to pursue identity. We start to pursue purpose in all these other ways, right? And then we're disconnected from nature. You see that in the very words that, that, that Adam was supposed to cultivate and, and, and to build up the world around him, but now the world is responding back. Nature is responding back with producing thicket and producing uh, of thorns and coming back and saying, no, no. And the thing is, friends, a lot of us in this area right here, Man, you know this struggle because you know what it is to look around you, to work 40 hours a week, to work 50 hours a week, to work 60 hours a week, to take 18 hours of classes, to take six hours of classes, to take all the things that you can in the world and try to figure out what life is about, all to end up at the, the, the end of it going, there's got to be something more. There has to be something more because everything I've been giving myself to seems to not be enough. We all know that feeling. Why? Because the very existence that we have nature and creation itself, right? We're disconnected from it. While creation is looking at us going, God, we're looking at it and going, self. While creation is looking at us going, the skies talk, the scriptures talk about literally that the skies display God's glory. In, in Romans 1, it says that, man, there's parts of, of, of nature that literally just talk about God's character and his characteristics. Meanwhile, we look at everything in the world and think, how can I gain from it? How can I build myself up from it? And at the end of it, we're looking and going, there's got to be something more. While Meanwhile, nature and creation itself would be like, you're right. You're definitely right. And so we're disconnected from all these things. We're disconnected from all these spaces. And, and this is the reality of the world uh, in the fall. And the reality that, hear me, look at me, a lot of us live in. There, there should be something on this, on this screen right here that's starting to invite you into a space where you're starting to think about the world through this lens, and there's something that you should be able to relate to there. Maybe, maybe your relationships are overall pretty good, but maybe you have some struggles. Maybe, maybe you are wrestling with some identity. Maybe you have tried to build an identity, build a, a certain sense of self on your job, your, your relationship with, with X, Y, and Z person, with your studies, uh, with your accomplishments, uh, with your house, with your car, with your kids, with your family, with your uh, X, Y, and Z right? And all of a sudden you're like, man, it just never seems to be enough. Maybe there has been a moment where you've looked at creation itself, just life in general, and thought there has to be something more than what I'm doing right now, because what I'm doing right now just seems to not be enough to actually give me what my heart and what anything inside of me that seems to be saying, I want something, I need something, and I'm trying to feed that part of me, and it just never seems to be enough just never seems to be sufficient. And I'm going and I'm going and I'm going and I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying and I go through person after person after person and job after job after job. Meanwhile, all the time we don't realize that this is, this is everybody. Everybody's going through this exact same thing because of what happens here. Right, this is, this is the weary world that we're talking about. It's not, it's not weary. I'm so insecure about saying that word, y'all. It's wild. It's not weary because there's just mistakes that people made. It's weary because of sin that leads to a disconnection from God that leads to a disconnection from everything. 
And that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. These get birthed out in all kinds of ways. There's areas that I didn't get a chance to touch on, mental health, emotional health, right? Like all these things, right, that natural disasters, all this stuff that gets put into this, this reality of, of what the world is in because of, of this idea of sin and disconnection from God. And, and this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we experience still, you and me. That's the fall. That's the world. And if it wasn't for the fact that in, even in this story there's still a promise, that would be extraordinarily discouraging. That would be extraordinarily discouraging. But the reality is there's a fall, but there's also a promise in this text. There's a promise even in the words that we read of this incredibly discouraging, unfortunate, horrible reality of the world. There's now a promise in this text that begins to invite us to start looking forward. In Genesis 3, but verse 14, a lot of y'all have read this many times or heard it many times. There is a verse that pops up in the middle of this curse narrative, this curse language. Uh, and it reads like this. In four, four, uh, it's going to be both of them. Or maybe 15. Um, speaking to the, to the snake, the, the tempter, God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now for, for generations of church history, uh, there, this verse has been given a nickname. Does anybody know the nickname? Ooh, mad nerd. Don't answer, don't, add, don't answer in the, okay, no, sorry. Don't answer, no deans. All right, and Megan, give me a second. Does anybody else, all right, besides the back row, know what the nickname to this, to this verse is. All right, Megan, give it to me. The Proto-Evangelion, 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 if you're going uh, to get mad technical and, and, and be a pronunciation person. Uh, and what that means is that it's almost like a pre-good news, like the first good news. Right, this idea that even in the midst of darkness and in the midst of pain, there is this declaration that goes out and, and like the first bit of good news that's gonna give way to a whole world of good news in the future, there is an initial declaration that something good is coming. That, that there will be enmity between the serpent, the tempter, between sin and this offspring of the woman's. This one who's going to come and who's going to crush this serpent and going to crush temptation and going to actually bring healing to, to those who are hurting and is going to do away with sin from the very beginning when it feels like exile has already taken place despite the fact that in the story there's no countries. And when it feels like slavery is already here despite the fact that there are no masters. When it seems like everyone is cast out from the very beginning of the story, there is already this narrative of someone who's going to come and rescue. Someone who's going to come and redeem. Someone who's going to come and make things right. And so every bit of the story after this starts to build toward this idea. Every single step of the story along the way begins to build toward the idea of the offspring that's eventually going to crush this serpent that at the beginning caused chaos and is going to restore everything to be beautiful again. And so all of a sudden with every child there comes this sense of anticipation. And then we have all these moments where we see these charismatic characters rise up from the ashes. We have Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon and all these individuals and everyone begins to build hope thinking, is this that person? Is this the person that's going to come and crush the 
one who's cast us out and bring us all back. And there's this fever pitch in the entire story that if you haven't picked up on it, and if you're not reading the Bible this way, so many things don't make sense. I got a little too excited. So many things don't make sense. So many things start to miss. Why when they start to say, can we have a king? It's so important when, when when they elect Saul. Right, when, when David comes and he brings back, right, the, 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 um, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, that, that story in 2 Samuel, why everyone's such at a fever pitch and so excited. Why when Solomon builds a temple, there's so much excitement. Why when the people now rise up in Ezra and say, we're going to go back to the ways of God, there is this fever pitch going, hey, something's happening. Maybe, maybe the someone uh, that, was, that was offered here is going to be the people of God in Ezra. Maybe in, in, in Genesis it's Abraham. Maybe in Exodus it's, it's Moses, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's Joshua after, after uh, the time in the wilderness. Who's it going to be? Something's going to happen, though. And all of the pressure and all of the hurt and all of the pain and all the things that have nestled on the world, on this weary world, are going to be fixed. They're going to be redeemed. And it starts in a a simple declaration, a simple promise at the beginning of the story. And that's why there is this deep sense of disappointment. Right, every time Abraham offers his wife to a king. Every time uh, Moses doesn't have enough faith. When David cheats on his wife. When Solomon becomes a follower of other religions and other faith practices, right? Every step of the way, when the anticipation mounts, there's a deep disappointment realizing that's not the one. Until one day, there's murmurs in the countryside of Judah. Right? Three wise men have visited the king, the, the Roman governor of the area, and they say, hey, we're following the star to, to come greet the king of the Jews. I am the king of the Jews. No, like the real king of the Jews. What? And there's all of a sudden some wild man with wild hair in the wilderness going, there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. And there's shepherds walking around going, man, there was a night a while back. Y'all should have seen it. The sky lit up like crazy. And all these kind of angelic figures started singing glory to God in the highest. And all of a sudden, a few years later, they start to get stories about how someone is starting to to do these wild things. And they're starting to bring healing to people. And they're starting to to reverse things. They're starting to to make people see again. They're starting to, to bring joy and love to people. They're forgiving people in ways that only God himself seems to be able to forgive people. And all the while, they're saying, who is this? To the point that John the Baptist himself in, in sends his messengers to say, ask that guy. Ask that guy. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Friends, that, that's what makes Christmas so uniquely special, right? That, that in the end, the New Testament authors are picking up all these themes, and they're saying, this is the one. To the point that even, even language like in 1 Corinthians 15, right? In, in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, for he, Jesus, must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, right? Where, where all of a sudden, the New Testament authors are picking up and going, you remember that? You remember when, when the, the offspring will... He'll, he'll, he'll strike the head. 
everything's going to be placed under Jesus' feet. Right? That when, when the world that, that knew this story, that knew the story we were living in, that knew the meta-narrative, right, began, began to understand and put together this Jesus is the one who's promised, right, they begin to erupt. It's almost like they figured out that the one who they'd been waiting for was finally here, and they were willing to die for it, which 11 out of the 12 of them did, of the followers of Jesus. Why? Because they understood a fundamental, beautiful, and powerful truth, right? It's going to be the next slide, uh, Misty, that every burden, disconnection due to sin is caused, reconciliation through Christ is going to heal. That every one of those things that was, that was brought disconnection as a result of sin, as a result of the fall, this Jesus is going to restore. Can you put back up that disconnection chart? That, that any disconnection from God's presence in Jesus is going to be restored. That, that his heart and his ways are going to be shown to us through the heart and care of Jesus. And that when we think, how much does God love us? Romans is going to tell us, if you ever want to know how much God loves you, God loves you in this, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. Go look at the man on the tree. That in, in being united with others now through Jesus, he's going to say, hey, in me, you are now brother and sister. You're no longer friend and friend, enemy and enemy. You're brother and you're sister. It's, it's so powerful that even in the Gospels, there's these moments where people with two completely different philosophies in life, right, would be seated and, and listed in the same text. And, and people that would see the Roman government as something that should be partnered with and treasured, and people that would see the Roman government as people that should be hated and despised would now be one and together in Jesus. There's, there's this, this reconciliation that takes place that says, look, we have differences and we will probably persist to have differences, but the differences that we have no longer define us because what defines us is this person and what he's done and his ways and his heart. Right? All of a sudden, your, your disconnection from yourself, that in Jesus, we are affirmed that Christ loves us through the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins and resurrecting for our identity. And so we're restored to ourselves, what we're called to in Jesus. You even think about texts like Colossians, right? And uh, where, where all of a sudden now, people that are, that, that are, that are in, in essence, slaves, but, but workers in households as well, are no longer called to work as people pleasers, but now we're called, who remembers it? To work is unto God. All these years later, centuries later, working for ourselves and trying to build up, and now the purpose that we have always longed for is, is restored to us, that we would work as unto God to bring glory to him. And then from nature, that, that inevitably, right, the, the more that's out there is in fact God himself. Right? That, that Romans says that those who are apart from God, that are outside of Christ, the mind is darkened and the heart is hardened to the point that they can't see a tree and think how beautiful God is. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that, but those that are in Christ, right, those that are in Christ, man, the, the, there's like a new heart that's given to them. Their mind is now clear so that when we see the grandeur of nature, it can, it can do a little spark and go, that's how beautiful God is. That's like seeing the splendor and beauty of God in that tree. Right? All of a sudden now we have this one who's come. This one that the story promised and that the story's been building up to. And he's going to be the one that takes the disconnection from the fall and he's going to be the one that reverses it. Let me tell you something, friend. As a loving, caring pastor, some of those things are going to happen right away. I've told you all the story. Your boy was out here partaking in herbal 
herbal herbal remedies, we'll say, uh, of the of the narcotic variety. Uh, probably six, seven times a day. I was smoking a lot of butt. That's what I mean. Um, I came to faith when I was 19 years old. And when I got up off my knees from praying and about 40 minutes of snot bubble crying, I just didn't have any desire to do it anymore. And all my boys were like, what's going on with this guy? This is the weirdest thing. All right, I told y'all that in our circle that night of, of friendship, all you heard was the bubble sound effect coming from a certain, certain piece of equipment people use to partake in such drugs. Because they were all like, what is going on with Josh? Because I was like, dog, I think I'm a Christian. Some of those things are going to happen right away. But you know what? Some of them are going to take till eternity comes. And Jesus comes back. But the promise of the resurrection is that the one we've been waiting for is the one that's here. The one that's alive today. And the one who's going to bring healing to every burden that the fall creates. Right? That, that promise is, is what they were hanging on to from the very beginning of the story. And that's the one that people began to celebrate when they heard that Jesus was here. And that's the one we, in this season of Advent, start to come together to celebrate together now. That the promised one who sees the depths of our, our hurt and our pain, who sees the depths of what the fall has caused, who sees everything that's going on, has responded by saying, I'll enter into that story and I will make things right. I will bring healing. I will bring restoration. I'll bring all the things that, 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 that creation is longing for. I'll bring healing to the weary world. And that's why we sing the weary world rejoices, friends. From the very beginning, there's been a promise that there would be one who's going to make things right. And on that night, oh, silent night, quote unquote, right, we rejoice because that one had come. During this season, I want your heart to be stirred toward Jesus. I want your heart to be stirred toward the reality that this story is not one that started when you got into it, but it's one that God had you in mind for at the very beginning of the story of humanity. And, and ha even now he has plans to continue to work through you and in you and in the world in order to bring redemption, in order to bring beauty. Our job in that is, is gonna be, gonna be multifold. We're gonna have things to do. Our church works at that. I want you to, to be encouraged by that and to participate in that. We'll have some serving opportunities. Like on the 17th, we're, we're helping hand out gifts uh, with the River City Youth Foundation. Man, I want you to be like, hey, let's do that. Let, let's get together in that. You'll hear more about that in your small groups. We also have like, like gifts for uh, Houston right, that we'll be doing this year. You'll hear more about that in small groups this week as well. There'll be opportunities to go and serve, and those things are gonna be powerful, and those things are gonna be beautiful. But the thing is, this, it starts not just with the idea of, of serving, but it starts with the idea of worshiping. It starts with the idea of seeing this Messiah and recognizing that his draw is not to say, I'm gonna make you do different things, but his draw is to reconcile and connect us back to this God who starts to remake and reshape the entirety of our lives. Right? That's, why we're, that's, that's why I'm making mention of the fact that my hope for you over the course of this next few weeks is that you have a, a stirring of your affection, your awe, your, your, your love of this Messiah that has come to make things right, that has come to bring beauty into the world in the midst of darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Thank you for you. Thank you, God. 
that in the midst of the fall, in the midst of, of darkness, in the midst of uh, weariness, in the midst of uh, the pain that we can all relate to on that screen, whether it's feeling a lack of purpose internally, whether it's relational struggles outside uh, of ourselves with others, whether it's just senses of identity, uh, that they all stem from, from a disconnection with you. And yet, in your promise of a Messiah, you, you deliver us an invitation to, to have hope that there will be one who will do more with our failures than we could do uh, even with our own successes. That, that, that you would bring one that would, that would remake the world and bring healing and life to those who desperately need it. That a weary world would rejoice at the invitation and at the arrival of the one you promised to bring life and hope. Thank you, Father. Let us worship you today. Let us grow a heart that worships and follows you every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.